Our first reading today is taken from Mark chapter 8. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Our second reading is from Mark chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, only Jesus. I don't uh, normally title my sermons, at least uh, not until it's time to put them up on the internet afterwards. But I think if, if there was a title for this one, it would probably be learning to see the world differently or learning to see things differently. 
Um, I've always loved uh, optical illusions. I don't know if, if you're into these. I've joined one of these Facebook groups that now appears to fill my Facebook feed with those kind of 3D things. Do you remember them? They were around in the 80s. And if you kind of defocus enough, suddenly a little 3D image pops out. Liz, uh, Liz can never see them because she basically can't see out of one of her eyes. And therefore, the 3D thing doesn't work. But I can, and I can see these things. And I've always loved that kind of optical illusion where you suddenly are able to see something a bit differently. Um, we've got one uh, that Fifi is just going to pop up on the screen briefly. I don't know if uh, you, you have ever come across uh, this one. Let's wait for it to pop that one. Yeah, uh, this one was published uh, by the satirical magazine Puck um, way back in the 19th century. And it, it's called My Wife and My Mother-in-Law. And uh, depending on how you look at it, uh, you are either seeing the face of an old crone looking at you, or you're looking at the profile of a beautiful woman looking away from you. It's one of those things that you can, you can see it either way. I did contemplate scrapping the sermon altogether and us just having a fun 20 minutes looking at optical illusions on the screens, but I figured that probably wasn't what I was here for. So we can take that away now, Fifi. Thank you so much. Um, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that not everything is always as it seems. Not everything can only be perceived in one way. Which is kind of, I think, the theme for our readings this morning from the Gospel of Mark. Today, uh, I'm, going to be, I'm going to turn on my liturgical radar. Today is that day in the Christian calendar known as Transfiguration Sunday, which in the uh, Protestant churches is usually celebrated on the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. So today is Transfiguration Sunday, and as we're continuing working our way through the Gospel of Mark, we do today conveniently find ourselves with the readings of the Transfiguration. It's almost like somebody planned the lectionary. Anyway, what I want to suggest this morning is that this story of the Transfiguration is an invitation to us to learn to see things in a new way, to learn to perceive the world differently. I'm going to come back to that in a bit. But first, I'd like us to spend a few moments considering the story that Mark gives us immediately before the story of the bright lights and the mythical, mystical characters on the mountain. I want us to spend a few moments with the confession of Jesus by Peter at Caesarea Philippi, which Judith gave us in our first reading. This story touches on some of the key philosophical issues of what it means to be human. Here in this story, we encounter the problem of suffering, the mysteries of life, death and resurrection. We encounter the nature of evil and the question of where ultimate authority lies. So buckle up, friends, we're going deep for a moment. I've mentioned before that in Mark's Gospel, none of the geography happens by accident. Mark often gives his readers little clues about where things are happening, and it's always worth paying attention to them. One of my great discoveries was a teenager when I got my NIV study Bible given to me for about my 13th birthday, I think, was that it had the maps in it, and I could start to locate where these places that are mentioned in the Gospels uh, were on maps of the Holy Land. And 
one of the things we discover when we start to do that is that Mark's gospel has a very careful geographical structure to it. It starts in the north, in the region of Galilee, and then it moves south to Jerusalem in the second half of the gospel. And here in our story for today, at the halfway point in the gospel, the narrative is about to start heading south, but not quite yet because today we're in the town of Caesarea Philippi. This is an ancient Roman city located on the southwestern base of Mount Hermon, and we're about as far north as the gospel gets today. Caesarea Philippi was a town built adjacent to a spring. It had a grotto, it had some shrines dedicated to the Greek god Pan, and it was a city that uh, at the time of Jesus had been rebuilt a few decades earlier by Herod the Great. Uh, you'll know Herod the Great, one of the ways he cemented his power over Israel was uh, through these extravagant building projects. And he, famously, he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. But he also did quite a number of other infrastructure projects. And he'd rebuilt Caesarea Philippi to be a northern center. He'd erected a large white temple there. And then his son Philip had further developed this city. So this was a new town being built and expanded. Uh, Herod's son Philip had named it Caesarea in honour of the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus and Philippi in honour of himself, a typical Herodian touch. It was Caesarea Philippi, Emperor me. That was the way he named it. This was a highly symbolic naming of Caesarea Philippi. It spoke of Roman power and of Jewish religious authority. It, the pagan mystery religions and the might of the Jewish Herodian dynasty. It is therefore no accident that Mark takes us up to Caesarea Philippi to address the question that has been haunting the gospel up until this point. The simple question, the deceptively simple question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's the question here. Now, of course, Mark has already given us his answer to this question. He gives it to us in the very first verse of the gospel. So we as his readers already know where he's going. We know he thinks that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we've had this confirmed to us as we listened to the voice of God declaring to Jesus at his baptism, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. All of that was there in chapter one of the gospel. But for the characters in the story that Mark is telling us, the characters in the gospel, the question of who Jesus is, is much more mysterious. Scholars now will tell us this is the literary device of dramatic irony, where the reader knows something that the characters in the story don't know. So the characters in the story are trying to work out who Jesus is. They've witnessed him casting out spirits of uncleanness. They've seen him healing people, restoring them to right relationships with others and with God, and they've heard a bit, but not a lot of his teaching. But have they worked out who he is? This is what we find Jesus asking Peter at Caesarea Philippi. And the initial response isn't really all that promising. Peter reports back that some people are saying that Jesus is the ancient prophet Elijah, returns to the earth. While others are saying that he's John the Baptist, come back from the grave. And I think this raises an interesting question for us today. 
in terms of the variety of views and opinions that exist about Jesus in our world. You see, I wouldn't mind betting that if we went out after the service onto Shaftesbury Avenue with some clipboards and said to people walking past, who do you think Jesus is? If we echoed Jesus's question to Peter, who do, who do people say that I am? Who do you think Jesus is? We might get some interesting answers. And I suspect that the responses we might get today would probably uh, mirror the responses that Peter gave Jesus in the first century. Some might say he's a religious leader, a spiritual reformer, a caller of people to repentance, a bit like John the Baptist was. Some, you know, he's John the Baptist come back. He's that kind of person, a religious leader, a spiritual reformer. Others might say he's a prophetic figure, offering a social and political and economic critique of the powers that be in society in the style of a modern-day Elijah. Religious reformer, social critic, John the Baptist, Elijah. People at the time of Jesus were putting those labels on him, and I think people still do. It may be there are some of us here this morning who would want to put Jesus into those categories as well. But Jesus pushes back a little bit. He pushes further, and he says to Peter, yeah, okay, but who do you say that I am? And here we get to the heart of the matter as Peter has one of his rare moments of lucidity. And he gives the answer that the gospel has been building up to. He says that he thinks Jesus is the Messiah. And honestly, it would be hard to think of a more inflammatory thing to say in the city of Caesarea Philippi. The word Messiah is a Hebrew word. It means anointed one. It's translated into Greek as the word Christ. Uh, so Christ is not Jesus's family name or surname. It's a title. When you say Jesus Christ, you are saying Jesus the Messiah. And the Jesus, the anointed one. And in the Jewish tradition, the only people who were anointed, the only messiahs allowed, were the high priest and the king. So only two people in the ancient Jewish world could claim to be Messiah, the high priest and the king. So for Peter to declare Jesus as the Messiah is a direct challenge to the very heart of the Jewish religious and political system. It's striking at the root of their religious authority and their royal power. Not to mention, of course, the implications for relations with Rome of proclaiming someone king in the town literally named after the Roman god emperor. This isn't so much a revelation as it is a manifesto for a revolution. And the possibility of it all getting very bloody very quickly is right there in the text at this moment. We don't know whether impetuous Peter, always quick with his sword and his words, if not always with his brain, was gearing up for an armed march on Jerusalem to retake the capital city from the Romans. But it's not unlikely that that kind of let's get the revolution going was in the air around Jesus at this point. 
I can kind of imagine maybe some of the uh, whipping up the crowds that was probably taking place in this building yesterday with the Morning Star newspaper. Maybe there was a bit of that kind of atmosphere in the air in Caesarea Philippi. It's time to march on Jerusalem, friends. Let's take the city. Let's take the country. Well, if that was in the air around Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, it certainly explains what happens next. Because firstly, Jesus tells Peter and the others not to say anything to anyone. Come on, simmer down. No, do not go saying that out loud here. There's no rabble rousing to the Jesus cause in Caesarea Philippi. And then Jesus starts to teach them about how the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and then after three days rise again. Jesus takes this moment to say that the Jesus revolution is not going to be that kind of revolution fought with swords and guns and bombs. That's not the way to win the world for the kingdom of God. And so you can understand why Peter is confused. Because he needs to learn the lesson that sometimes he needs to learn to see things differently. Not everything is as it seems. Not everything can only be seen the one way. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the anointed one, if he is the personification of royal power and the embodiment of religious power, then he certainly doesn't look like the kind of king or priest that Peter or anyone else would have naturally hoped for. If this is Jesus making his great bid to become the heir to King David, the king who was also a priest, then something is going wrong, or at least it doesn't look like it should. If this is Jesus challenging the power of Caesar, Rome and the Herodian dynasty, then it's not going to work, says Peter, if he's going to go to his death. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you and the others need to learn to see it differently. Not everything is always as it seems. There is another way to the kingdom of God coming on earth that is not the path of violence. Closer attention to what Jesus is saying reveals that Mark here, the author of the gospel, is making a deliberate point. In his choice of words, he's consciously aligning Jesus with the trajectory of the suffering servant from the book of Isaiah, who faced suffering and death for the sins of the world. As we approach Easter, the words of the suffering servant will come to us, won't they, through Handel's Messiah and other, other songs that we're going to be engaging with and other Bible readings. Well, who is this suffering servant? What's Isaiah talking about? At the time the book of Isaiah was written, so this is at the time of the Babylonian exile, of Israel in exile in Babylon, the suffering servant that Isaiah speaks of was a personification of the nation of Israel. It's Israel suffering the indignity of exile at the hands of sinful nations who have rejected God and God's people. And Jesus is indicating that just as the suffering servant Israel had to face pain, so the same will be true of him. He goes to Jerusalem to die on the cross to become the suffering servant, the embodiment of Israel, 
So why does Jesus do this? Why does he say the Son of Man must undergo great suffering? It's a big question, really. Why, why does Jesus have to die? Some Christians will say that Jesus had to suffer and die because it was the only way that the wrath of God against human sin could be satisfied. And that if the wages of sin is death, then divine righteousness demands the sacrifice of the innocent victim in place of those sinners whom God longs to spare. Have you heard that explanation of, of the cross? This kind of thinking is known as the substitutionary atonement theory, to give it its uh, proper theological title. Jesus is substituted for us in order that our sins may be atoned. Well, it isn't the only atonement theory in town. Sometimes we need to learn to see things differently because not everything is as it seems and not everything can only be seen one way. And I'd like to suggest an alternative, which is that Jesus had to suffer and die, not because God is wrathful, but because humans are sinful. It's an important distinction. If Jesus is God made flesh, drawing near to humans in love, then sin is human resistance to that inbreaking kingdom of God. To put it another way, sin is the human will which fights to the death to stop God being God, because deep down we want God to be more like us. And so we resist a God who is not like us and who has different priorities to our priorities. So Jesus says that he must suffer and die not to keep sinners from the hands of an angry God, but because he knows that if he is to remain true to his mission of bringing God's offensively inclusive love to everyone, then humans, at least some of them, are going to resist him to the bitter end. And that is why he must die, because he will not compromise on his embodiment and proclamation of God's loving kingdom. And because people are still caught in sin, they will fight to stop God drawing near to them. So Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected by those who should know better and must die, but nonetheless will rise again. So if the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah, if Israel faced exile and destruction at the hands of those who rejected God and God's people in order to bring salvation to the nations who had otherwise denied God's love, then the same will be true of Jesus, who will embody the hope of God's people in all times and places, and who therefore, as the suffering servant, must suffer and die in order to unmask the violence of human sinfulness once and for all. We're in Racial Justice Week. Martin Luther King knew that it was very likely that he would be attacked and possibly killed. He preached about it. He knew that was a possibility. But he also knew that if it happened, it would so unmask 
the powers of racism, that the world would see how evil takes root in the world and takes form in violence. This is why Jesus must suffer and die, because in his suffering and death, he unmasks, he makes it clear the evil of violence that resists God drawing near to you and you and you and all of us. The death of the Messiah at the hands of sinners will be the cataclysmic event from which there is no going back. There will be no undoing of this moment of scapegoating where the one dies for the sins of the many. Well, it's no wonder poor Peter is confused and upset. He was expecting a bloody revolution and what he's going to see is a bloody sacrifice. But it's also not the end of the story. And the good news here, which, Peter, which Jesus speaks, but which Peter misses, at least for the moment, is that the death of the Messiah must be followed by resurrection. One of the ways of thinking about resurrection, which I find helpful, is that resurrection is God's no to human rejection. Resurrection speaks the deep truth that God's ultimate will for each of us and for all humanity is for life and not for death to get the final word. Every time humans draw back from God and resist God's attempts to draw near to them, every time we make choices that bring death and pain and suffering to humanity, from Hamas on October the 7th to what Israel is doing in Gaza today, every time humans choose pain and suffering, God answers back with a divine no, persistently calling life back into being from the tombs we create. This is why the Son of Man must suffer and die, because without confronting the awful consequences of human sin, then the path to life remains stubbornly blocked. So what is this resurrection to life? What is so wonderful that it's worth suffering and death to find it? Again, there are those Christians who will say that the life Jesus brings is a life beyond death, the afterlife, heaven, eternity on a cloud with a harp, however you like to think of it. And I'm not going to try and deconstruct the classical theology of heaven this morning. You'll be glad to know that's a sermon for another day. But I do wonder if there is a helpful shift of perspective here that might help us understand what Jesus is getting at. Sometimes, as has been said, we need to learn to see things differently and not everything can only be seen one way. The Greek word that's used here in the gospel for life is the word suke. It's where we get um, the words like psychiatry from. It describes the life spiritual, the life of the soul, the heart and the mind. Interestingly, it isn't the other Greek word for life, the word zoe, uh, which is where we get words like zoo from, uh, which describes physical life, you know, hearts pumping and lungs expanding and physicality. The life, the resurrection life that is being spoken of here in the gospel is not, a, it's not the physical life of a body. It's the spiritual life of the soul, the heart and the mind. So Jesus says that those who want to save their life their suke will lose it, and that those who lose their life 
for his sake will find it. And he's talking here about the life spiritual, not the life physical. The loss and gain in view here is the essence. It is the vitality of the person. You can lose your soul, my friends, while still alive. Do not lose your soul. Do not become dead in your heart whilst alive in your body. If, otherwise, if you do, you lose yourself, your sense of who you are. And it is the sacrifice of Jesus that restores people to their true self, their true quality of life, because by unmasking the sin that lurks in our hearts, the incipient violence that each of us carries with us, we are healed and raised to a new life. So we have to give up ourselves in order to find life. And so we come at last to this moment of transfiguration when Peter and James and John and Jesus make their pilgrimage up Mount Hermon from Caesarea Philippi up onto the snowy mountaintop where it's cold and you need to build shelters to keep yourself warm and safe. And here we find ourselves with them sharing in this ultimate mountaintop experience, this moment of supreme revelation in the gospel, where the key group of disciples around Jesus hear from the voice of God the answer to the question of who Jesus is. This is where Mark's assertion in the first verse of the gospel and Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi get their divine authorization. And we are told Jesus is the son of God and that in Jesus, all the fullness of God is made known to humans. In Jesus, God is drawing near to sinful humans in an act of great love identifying with us in all of our sinfulness in order to fan into flame the spark of true life that lies dormant in even the most corrupted of human souls. In Christ, God is drawing our souls to life, gifting us resurrection, gifting us new life, showing us a new way of seeing and being and doing. The moment of transfiguration is God's gift to each of us, showing that we can share in and experience the life-giving, life-affirming, life-renewing resurrection of Christ. And the question for us, for you and for me, as it was for the disciples on that mountaintop, is whether we can accept and inhabit this new perspective my friends, do you know Jesus as your friend and saviour? Do you know Jesus as the one who draws your soul to life? If you do not, then I invite you to learn to do so and to step into that place where Jesus is your saviour. The one who draws you to life every day. If you have not been baptised into the name of Jesus, Come and talk to me and we'll do it on Easter Sunday. Peter, of course, gets it wrong. <laughs> Again, having already denied what Jesus had said about the need to be crucified, he next offers to build some huts for Jesus and these two Old Testament characters who'd mysteriously uh, 
appeared with him on the mountain. It's sometimes suggested that Moses and Elijah here appear at this point to demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law personified by Moses and the prophets personified by Elijah. But I actually think there's something else going on. Um, as at this point where heaven opens to reveal the identity of Jesus and we get Moses and Elijah, I think we're, we're finding ourselves in the world of their role in the ancient Jewish apocalyptic tradition. Both of them in the Hebrew Bible have slightly ambiguous death traditions, which means that in the Jewish apocalyptic texts, Moses and Elijah, along with others such as Enoch, often feature as kind of tour guides of heaven. You know, you have a vision and you find yourself in heaven and somebody shows you around. It's like, you know, over here we have the divine throne. Over here we have the lake of fire. Oh no, that's down below. But you, you know the kind of thing I mean. And it's often Moses and it's often Elijah and sometimes it's Enoch. And their appearance with Jesus at this moment of a vision of heaven being opened is an indication to us that this is one of those apocalyptic moments. It's a moment of the unveiling of truth when the boundary between God's realm and the earthly realm is breached. You may have had one of those moments. I've had the odd one here and there where you just find yourself, you know that you're in the presence of God. They don't last forever, of course. You may have had your mountaintop experience of an overwhelming and inescapable sense of the presence of God, but none of us can stay on that mountaintop forever. We have to get back to real life and the daily grind of living out the truth of what has been revealed to us. So Peter is mistaken, but understandably so, in his desire to perpetuate that moment by building some huts and everybody settles down and lives on the mountaintop with Jesus and the vision forever. But the revelation of Jesus' identity doesn't leave him. His perspective is forever changed by his encounter with Jesus on that mountain and the hot-headed, impetuous, sometimes stupid Peter ends up as the rock on which the church is built. And the same can be true for us in our encounters with the transfigured Christ. So I wonder if this morning on Transfiguration Sunday, we can see in a new way what it means for us to believe that in Jesus, God is drawing near to us. Can we find in ourselves that change of perspective that then affects the way we live in the world? This is no cost-neutral paradigm shift. It's going to bring transformation to the lives of anyone who opens their heart to it. And the transfiguration story ends with this voice from heaven, declaring that Jesus is God's son, echoing the words spoken from heaven at Jesus's baptism. At the baptism, the declaration was for Jesus to hear, and Jesus is addressed directly, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. But when we get to the transfiguration, the declaration is for everyone. This is my son, the beloved, listen to him. The change of perspective here is not just about who Jesus is, but about what you are going to do about it, what we are going to do about it. It is not enough to accept that Jesus is God's son. That then has to go somewhere. And those who have seen the transfiguration, who have received the revelation of Jesus' identity, 
now need to learn to listen to the voice of Jesus. And there are so many voices clamoring for our attention, so many calls on our loyalty, allegiance and resources. And in the midst of it all, can we learn to listen to the voice of Jesus? Can we hear him challenging all those powers that might seek to own us? Can we receive and respond to his invitation to a new quality of life where we lose ourselves in him in order to be found by the one, by the one who truly loves us? Justice Sunday, just a few statistics first. According to the latest figures from the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, over 108 million people around the world have been forced to flee their homes. Among and around 41% of them are nearly 35 million refugees, some 41% of whom are under the age of 18. So firstly, a short prayer by Dr. Injudith Bogle, a former president of the Methodist Conference and founder of the City of Sanctuary Network. This is his prayer, let us pray. Migrant God, unbound and free from borders, your presence spans the universe. In all our travel and travail, you are the constant companion of all. In you is our eternal rest and refuge. In Jesus, who had nowhere to lay his head, you reveal yourself taking sanctuary among us. We behold you still in the face of all who are uprooted from their homes by war and weather, persecution and poverty. We bless you for their courage and resilience in seeking justice, freedom and sanctuary. Bless us all, pilgrims together. Here we have no abiding city. Bring us to where you want us to be. In the name of Christ. And with the background of Gaza, the Ukraine and other centres of conflict in mind, we continue. Lord, we have come to view a world brittle in its brokenness, ravaged by hate, violence and greed and accompanied so often by a mindset of cruelty, bloodshed and strife. Lord, we yearn for a day when weapons of conflict will be transformed into tools of reconciliation and we can focus on an image of a fairer world where there will be no more death or mourning or pain. May the arms of comfort and compassion overwhelm the arms of war. May the light of peace and reconciliation overwhelm the bleak darkness of destruction. And may we learn to live God's hope in a world which often seems to have lost or abandoned hope. God of peace and harmony, look charitably upon a fallen world. We remember especially now those around us who struggle in life's shadows and live life in its margins. Let us therefore not neglect to pray for those who are unemployed, 
the housebound, the homeless, the lonely, for those struggling with debt, many still fearing the cost of simply keeping warm in these winter months. Lord, we share the anxiety of so many who feel burdened or crushed by the journey of life. Grant us the grace and humility to respond in whatever way we can, however small or mean. Let us remember too those who are sick, others facing the challenge of debilitating illnesses with often life-changing consequences. Lord of compassion and healing, hear our prayers. Therefore, in the season of Lent, we relive the narrative of watching and waiting, grief with hope. And to conclude, a few lines of encouragement from an old hymn as we look forward towards the great defining hope of Easter. The cross, it takes our guilt away. It holds the fainting spirit up. It cheers with hope the gloomy day and sweetens every bitter cup. Lord of immeasurable love, be pleased to hear these our prayers. Amen. And so, as we go out from here, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you dignified and upright. May the Lord provoke you to walk in the shoes of others. May the image of God be made whole in each of us, living fully into its calling. May we all journey towards justice and the kingdom of God made real for all our sakes. Amen. <laughs>